Hello, welcome to the Curator Podcast. This is episode six. Welcome once again, dear listener, to the Curator Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and this is episode 7. So I'm recording this on July the 1st, which I've just read is the hottest July day since records began. So just to sort of run you through where I'm standing right now, I'm standing in my wardrobe covered in a blanket. It is hot. I mean, the sweat is literally pouring off me. It's disgusting. I might actually pass out during recording this. It remains to be seen, frankly, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did. So today's guest is Kenny from Carnivores. Kenny is a really interesting, articulate and intelligent guy, so it was really good to sit down and chat with him. We had quite a lovely long chat about carnivores, touring and politics, so I hope you like what you hear. I'm going to try and keep the preamble to a minimum, so... Let's just crack on. This week, I've been blown away by the response to the podcast. I've had some folk email me and give me some iTunes reviews, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, So if you haven't done that yet, please do that. I would really appreciate that. Uh, I respond to all the emails. And really, I want to get this podcast up iTunes. I want want people to notice it, to notice that there is something special going on in Scotland, not just in the music scene, but in the art scene in general. And I really hope this podcast can be part of that. So please, if you get the moment, if you could do that, I would appreciate that so much. Before we get into the interview, I just want to chuck out a couple of recommendations. Firstly, President Obama was on WTF with Mark Madden last Monday. And I read yesterday that it had just hit 1.6 million listeners, which is kind of crazy. So if you haven't checked it out before, it'd be a great episode to do so. It's probably the most human I've ever heard Obama be. I suppose, and this, but even though that Mark Madden wasn't as effusive as he usually is, he was actually quite restrained. I still think it's a really, really good podcast. And with 1.6 million listeners, I think we can definitely say that podcasting is now in the mainstream. It's only getting bigger as you know, as time goes on and smartphones become more ubiquitous. Also, what I recommend Bridge the Atlantic. Uh, these guys were talking to me on Twitter throughout the week. And it's a really good podcast. If you like something which is similar to this, which sort of exposes creativity and creative people, then you really should check it out. Plus it's run and presented by a fellow Scot. So, I mean, what's not to like there? So, yeah, definitely give that a listen. Let's get on with today's podcast. This interview opens with a track from Carnivore's latest album, Let's Get Metaphysical, which is out now in Small Town America Records. And this is the title track, Let's Get Metaphysical. I'm 
Kenny, how you doing? I'm very well, thanks. You've been up to? I've just finished work and now I'm back home. Everything's great. We're currently in the south side of Glasgow. It's very nice flat. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the walls are very white. I know, like, uh, we moved in about a month ago and the landlady, like, that was a landlady, uh, yeah, person who used to live here who owns a flat, had, like, across the wall was, like, you can see there's all these screws in the wall, it was just, like, 12 records, but it was, like, wham. And stuff like that, like framed vinyl, the way that people have got like Velvet Underground and really cool stuff. She had like Wham and George Michael and Erasure vinyls all along the wall. And me and my flatmate were going to keep it up for like a month, but when we moved in, they were all gone. I was really disappointed. So the place looks a bit bare, but we're getting around to putting some stuff up. The current two things are on the wall is a signed photograph of Tony Fitzpatrick, who was the St. captain in 1987 when we won the Scottish Cup. And a old 1940s tenant slagger framed picture, so that's us. I take a photograph of that for relief. <laughs> My flatmate thought the 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 Simon picture was actually the Tom Selleck from Magnum PI. Actually, first yeah. class, it looked like it looked a bit like Graham Soonis to me. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I went with Graham, Graham Soonis up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Horrible decision. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, how's the band then, man? You guys have. You must be like working on your new record for this point. Um, we actually haven't for a change. Usually we are always writing and stuff, but the last, like, pretty much last year, we worked pretty full on and we kind of realised that, like, our current drummer, Martin, joined us in January, January 1st, 2013. And we pretty much toured, gigged and recorded all the way through to October last year. So we were all totally bust and needed a bit of a break. So we've been kind of intermittently working and stuff this year. We're about to go on tour again in the summer. We're doing a live album, and um, yeah, we're doing that in we're recording that in Derry, Northern Ireland, where our record label is based. So it's pretty cool. We're going to have some new songs on that, and like older songs that haven't been released and stuff. So it's going to be cool because I think like the general consensus with our band is that the records are cool, but us live is a thing that is better than anything we've managed to record. So where did that begin for you, man? Like the music thing. Um, where did that start? I started playing music. Well, I first got into music when I was dead young. Like, my parents don't play music, but I got into music. Like, listening to records and stuff at a really young age. When I was about seven, I started buying albums. Um, I started playing guitar when I was 10. Um, I'd always want, I kind of didn't know what I was going to be good at, and I finally decided I wanted to play guitar. Because I was, I'm 28, so like, by that time, like, Britpop was a big thing. So, like, Oasis and Blur. And I got a guitar and just taught myself. And from then, I think I started playing in bands when I was. 
played my first gig when I was 13, I think. Yeah, what I December 2000, yep, played my first gig when I was 13 years old, and uh, it's been like that ever since, you know, just playing in bands, playing in bands, going to college, studied music, played in more bands, tours and everything, yeah, so started playing at a really young age. It's younger than a lot of people, especially your first gig at 13, that's, that's younger than most people. Yeah, it was just a thing to do, because like, I come from Paisley, the really small town, and, oh, it's a big town geographically, but small culturally, so like, there wasn't much to do, like, played football fairly well, but wasn't good enough to go forward. So I had to have another thing that was like, mm, I could be good at. So playing music was that. So started playing guitar and it was just, it seemed pretty obvious that when you play guitar, then you form a band. And if you formed a band, you play gigs. That was a pretty direct link. Like I have, like my uncle, like my dad's brother, he's been a musician, like a, a working musician in Newcastle for about 30 years. So that's what he does. He plays gigs every week. So that was kind of from that. So I guess that was the, the sign was this like playing bands, whatever band it was. So I played guitar in like a metal band. I played like double bass in the school jazz band. I played like drums in a band. So you just play it because it's there to be played. So that was that. Played all the way through school. Um, yeah, so that's how I started playing in bands. So since you started so young, has there ever been a time you can remember not having like wanting to play music like is it always in your head has it always been a thing like you've had on your mind since as far back as you can remember I guess yeah I think the longest period of time I haven't played a gig was actually um, like longest space in between not playing a gig was maybe last year at some point I think there was a bit a kind of six month period where we didn't I didn't play a show when it was in between stage of our album being finished and coming out and I was not really doing stuff and having a really terrible full time job so that's what I think in the last, how many years is that? 10, when was 2000? Aye, last 15 years. <laughs> last 15 years I think I've maybe had about six months of not playing music. The rest of the time I've always been either rehearsing or playing gigs or recording. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always been there. How does that kind of six months of downtime feel then? Have you been on the go for like 15 years? At the time it was, it was, uh, really frustrating because the job I had at the time, every, I hated it so much that all I did was think about music and I had quite a position of fair responsibility managing a shop, but it was a terrible shop. So you'd zone out and just think about songs and think about releases and artwork and kind of utilize company material to do promotional <laughs> stuff and sit and you know, promote stuff all, on, all day online. Um, so that kind of was frustrating because I was thinking about music all day, but it's one of these things that like I have periods of like intense activity that sometimes when I take a bit of time off I kind of go, oh, it's nice having a normal life and being able to do normal things instead of basing everything around playing music and being a band. But at the end of the day, it's still like a sort of itch that needs to be scratched. Like we played a gig quite recently and it was like a, f like a, a facet of my life that I'd like not done for a few months. You do it again and you realise how important it is. That's good. That's like, you've been doing it for so long, it's basically become such an integral part of who you are. So I find it really interesting that you say when you weren't doing it, you feel like you had a normal life. Mm. That, if that's what you've been doing for a while, yeah. then that's not really normal, is that, I guess? No, it's playing, playing music is one of the most extreme things you can do in terms of your personality because it's, you, you almost get like, kind of, from me away from 
play music, I'm quite a quiet guy, but like on stage, anyone who's seen a band or listen to their music knows it's very full on and very frantic and you jump about and you shout and go crazy. And you have that sort of way where you think it's a sort of Bruce Wayne Batman thing. You know, is Bruce Wayne wearing the mask to be a super, to be a, a normal person, but is actually a maniac and is Batman or is Batman putting on the mask to be a superhero? So you don't know if like, am I the person that plays gigs? Is that really what I'm like? Or is the quiet person really what I'm like? You start to get a bit messed up if you're doing that all the time, especially if like there was about a five or six year period where I was like touring constantly and working in that terrible shop. So you can have insane bursts of reality maxed out with like great kind of celebrate like like celebration experiences of like playing gigs and enjoying yourself and having creative freedom, but also going back to a very mundane existence. So it's that's that's kind of what my normality has been for years is this you go and you play gigs after 12 hour shifts and then you go back and you work 12 hour shifts but you feel great in between that when you do the gig so when you don't do gigs and you start to do it and other people do it gets a bit boring <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense um, I remember reading an interview years ago with John Feldman from Goldfinger and also now mega producer and he said there must be something wrong with people wanting to be in bands because it's just it's just not a normal thing to do yeah. uh, I think I feel that myself I don't know about you Aye. it's like I noticed that when I, when I started playing in bands like when I was playing guitar I was in primary school and I was maybe like like our school had a music programme but it was brass instruments that was it we didn't have pianos or anything at our school it was a fairly terrible state school in Paisley so when I went to high school and I'd already been playing guitar for a few years it was only then that I realised that other people who played guitars and drums and bass who wanted to be in the bands were all mental. You know, it's just it sort of people who want to play in bands, I think psychologically want the, the unity unity of being around other people who are as weird as each other. So I think that's what kind of playing in bands is great for because you end up meeting all these people who are all completely messed up about the same things. So enjoy being around each other. You definitely see that in Glasgow in the music scene there that there's there's very very few people I know from the Glasgow music scene who are from Glasgow. They're born and bred Glaswegians. I mean, I'm I'm from Paisley, that's seven miles away, so that's like culturally quite different. But there's people who are from all over the place, and generally they were like the the weirdo in the, their high school who is now coming to Glasgow to do creative things, and be they can be as weird as they want around all these other people, which is amazing. So going back to something, just picking up on something you said, uh, you. You said you were touring and playing gigs and doing that kind of thing for a long period, like five years, like solid. Um, and was that with Carnivores or was it with another band? Or um, well, When I started my sort of career of playing in bands, I was playing in bands through school. My first serious band was when I was about 15, 16. We'd done a lot of touring and it was your fairly standard kind of genetic oasis-y, Britpoppy type band. I was like a bass player, manager sort of guy. Um, and we toured quite a lot around Scotland at a young age. Uh, and I was in a band that was like a metal band who kind of almost done something. We were at a point where like Kill Switch Engage had come out and built for my Valentine. And a few big record labels were kind of looking at us and going, this could be like our version of that. But we all turned it down because it was like that way when you go and speak to a record label and we're like, oh yeah, we love you guys, but we want to change the sound, the image, the music the guys in the band how he's look and how he's going to look and what he's dressed like and it's like so you don't like the band really so <laughs> when you see through that at a young age you go cool I don't want to be a part of that anyway so I've done that and I started kind of being like a singer songwriter for a while 
and I wasn't, I was kind of struggling to find what was my thing. So I toured a lot like that, just going around playing acoustic guitar, like touring around the country. I'd done, I think, about 150 shows doing it like that. Um, there was a year I did 100 gigs, I think 2007 or 2008, I'd done a, a solid 100 gigs while I was working full time, which basically absolutely killed me. But it made me get, so I didn't start singing until I was a lot older, I was about 19, no, 17, 18 when I started singing. So that was kind of like, like the way that footballers do the go on loan and play in the lower leagues to get good. I went on tour solo playing to nobody to get my voice to be very strong and very loud and it worked because I've got a very loud voice when I sing live. But um, that was what I did before I decided that I wanted to be in a rock band, like a power trio. And that was how I formed Carn Carnivals in about 2008. And yeah, so 2008 onwards, that was basically when we started trying to do music. And it was about 2010 we started taking it seriously. So yeah, the last the last you know, four or five years has pretty much been exclusively Carnivals. I have like been away and like worked with other bands in terms of like taking for them and like tour managing and stuff. So that side it is good, but it was a side that I kind of did mainly to facilitate my love for being away on tour and all that, which is cool. Something I don't really do much anymore. So how has that experience helped shape Carnivores and the goals you have for Carnivores? Touring makes you better as a musician because it's not just been the musical side of it; it's the sort of mental side of being on tour because it forces you to be good at what you do. Because when you're touring at our level, which making no illusions is an incredibly small level you know most of the time we've toured in cars off very small vans so you need to be good you need to have you need to have everything prepared and it's that sort of preparation that kind of break, makes or breaks bands when they start out like I remember I remember 2010 or 2011 when we did tea break like the big Tina Parker unsigned thing and I think there's only three bands still going from that that year which is us the LaFontaine's and Fallison and every other band patched it because they couldn't hack the touring side of it afterwards or they couldn't hack the fact that they had to have a work ethic. And I think the three bands that have came out of that have been, you know, as Fallis and LaFontaine's have had that work ethic and the sort of drive, you know, whatever you think about them musically. They've had this sort of dedication which comes from touring. Because you go out on tour, you're responsible for not just yourself, but the other guys in the band and supports and, you know, paying the bills and stuff. So there's a lot of responsibility to take on. Then it kind of, you come back from tour, a much better band. I think anybody who's been on tour for more than a week will come back and will absolutely nail it live, unless they're just a shite band. <laughs> uh, so I was reading, I've read some interviews that you've done. Uh, I've, I did my research. Uh, you said, well, I guess I'll go, I'll come with this question first and then we'll come back to the one I was going to ask. Um, who are some of the songwriters that you look up to that helped help you not only be become the songwriter you are now, but kind of the is the well you keep going to, I guess you could say. Um, I've always loved Rivers Cuomo from Weasel, like this incredible songwriter, to a point. Because like the first three Weasel re records are amazing. There's great examples of great guitar music, great pop. And he's kind of went a bit off-piste the last few records, but Rivers Cuomo definitely. Um, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, phenomenal songwriter. Um, see, anytime anyone asks me this, I always take a pure blank for whatever I'm going to talk about. Um, I guess there's like, there's a lot of like bands that don't relate to the sort of music we, we play, but like that I love songwriting wise, like Blur are one of my favourite bands and always will be like Blur and Radiohead. Like I said, Weezer, Wilco. Like things that you always go back to, like a Dillinger Escape Plan, 
like always like change the way I play guitar and like make me think in different ways even though we're not half as technical as what they are if it wasn't for me hearing that style of music I wouldn't have thought I could like mix things like that I'll just get playing and Weezer together to make kind of roughly what we sound like so those guys definitely and plus all the obvious ones you know Elvis Costello and Beatles you know those guys invented songs you know it's interesting I was talking to my flatmate uh, that I was coming to interview you and he's like I've never heard carnivores before and I tried to describe what you guys sounded like and I found that I couldn't Aye. Um, and that that that, made, that unsettled me <laughs> what, what, did you get any thoughts on that? well it was actually one of the, the best one of the best bad reviews we've ever had was when some guy came to see us and was just like I don't get this like one of their songs is like totally indie and one of their songs is almost death metal and then they've got other songs that are like halfway between like pop music and like hardcore we I don't quite get this if they just made everything into one box it would make so much sense and that kind of that was when we first started and it made us sort of rethink what we we're going to do and have a sort of unifying thing so but it is the, it is the thing with Carnivals is just that we're a rock band that's the only way you can describe it because it's those heavy bits there's pop bits there's really weird technical bits there's noisy sections it's something we've always tried to do kind of keep it fresh is not not have more than two songs that are like the same but it's still just guitar bass drums and vocals to people to people who aren't aware of all the different genres and subgenres, it's just rock music which is kind of what I'm most comfortable telling people it is but I guess if you have to call it something that's like post-hardcore or alternative rock or something you know it's just rock music yeah, you know? like you even need to have those labels it's just yeah. yeah it's rock music there's guitars there's singing there's shouting there's really heavy rhythms but there's also harmonies and nice choruses and there's no guitar solos there's guitar solos are terrible <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love guitar solos man <laughs> I, I'd never got that side of guitar playing I remember when I started playing guitar it was me and a guy I was at school with who was also learning how to play guitar and we are both like Metallica and stuff and he was like a total advocate of sitting with the tab books learning how to do the two-handed tapping and learning how to riff the solos and I was like the complete opposite I was just like how do you write songs and how do you construct arrangements and how do you make the song better so I guess there's two types of guitar players there's the ones who like the sort of technical element of being very good at a tool and there's some people who use guitars as a means to creativity and I definitely am in that way because although I love playing guitar and I love like being good at it I'm not interested in solos or like kind of this are I don't want to say limelight element of guitar solos but there's definitely that element of like people who play guitar solos want probably are the same people who like cars <laughs> you know most people I know who really like like the ripping totally guitar solos are the same people who really enjoy fast cars <laughs> and I think there's an element of that like goes together but not for me. A psychology paper on that for sure, man. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, I remember, like, there was a thing, I, I watched this documentary about, like, music in America, and I said, like, certain bands are huge in America, not because they're good, because not because they're good songs, but because they're technically proficient. So, like, Dream Theater and Steve Vai and Dave Matthews Band, they're not, people in America like to see people executing their duties well. You know, that's why NASCAR is huge, because it's, people being good at something continuously <laughs> whereas I think in Europe we prefer music to have a bit more soul and character and story to it um, but I remember there's been quite a few people have come to our gigs and they've been like oh man this is really great but where's the guitar solos and like why do you need to have a guitar solo we've written like loads of cool bits within the song like adding a really twiddly 
twelve bar solo would just be ridiculous. You know? It's almost offensive. In a way. Yeah, aye. <laughs> There's been points where we've written tunes where we're like, it would actually be pretty cool if we had a guitar solo here, and we've went to try and do it, and we're like, nah, that's it's really terrible. <laughs> yeah. You said you talked a little bit about documentaries there. Um, I have read some interviews that you've done, and you said that film, TV, that kind of thing, documentaries are a huge influence. Ah. Your your lyrics definitely have quite a social social awareness, I guess you could say. Is that related to like your love of or that kind of media? Um, it's something that I'm trying to stop doing because I think it's it's dead. It's really easy to write lyrics, but what you've read in the paper today or what you've seen in the news, it's dead easy to kind of come across as being like, I I am laying down my views on the world, and I kind of like looking back on our previous records. Those songs I think I think are the ones that I, I don't really enjoy because it's kind of like, you know. Billy Bragg esque, you know, I I am making a stand for the working man sort of thing, and it's like, no, 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 I know it's some people do it really well. I don't think I do it particularly well. There's some guys who do that sort of really, like earnest statements about life thing really well. Um, I don't really enjoy writing like that anymore. There was a period where I kind of, I did kind of want to be like, Mister Social Conscience, and like I am going to educate the masses about how life should be. But then you kind of think. Nah, because there's always going to be one person disagrees with what you write about, you know. So it's I prefer to write songs that are more autobiographical or like stories. I can never do the whole third person thing, and I'm getting a bit bored of the whole social commentary thing. It was cool for a while, but not so much anymore for me. But I do like film and TV is a huge thing for me. Like, can I? Most of the times I write songs, I'm sitting just watching TV or like watching films or things like that. But I'm trying to get away from the whole political element of writing or like social conscience thing because it's it gets a bit boring. It's an easy it's an easy thing to write about, and I don't think it's, you, no one's got much to say anymore. Well, you've been doing it for so long, man, and you, obviously the goal is to challenge yourself as well. So maybe breaking out of those kind of I guess patterns that you've created for yourself is obviously a very good thing. Yeah, ah, uh, it's just this writing songs is just you constant challenge for yourself. You've always got to find a new thing to tap into because it would be very easy to be like a post-hardcore band that sung about how bad the Tories were and how bad the BMP is and UKIP, you know. I look at American bands like that, like Rise Against and things like that and it's like every album seems to be about another series of social injustice that don't really say much but basically stand up for saying we're liberal and if you're not liberal, then you're probably terrible at life, you know? <laughs> so it'd be, it'd be really easy to do Plus, I don't think there's much politically you can write about. There's a lot. That's like, there's a song on the last album that I, I did kind of want it to be like the final song I wrote about that called Apathy in the UK. And it was like sort of how politically unsavvy a lot of people are. But then towards the end of the year, when you saw like Scottish independence thing and then this last general election, I think kind of our generation of people are a lot less apathetic towards politics than what they used to be and I've always been pretty politically aware it's kind of something I've been brought up with but like I was always really disgusted with like the amount of my friends who had never voted so that was kind of that song I wanted that to be like the last element of this is the last sort of social song we're going to write and it is this going to be like kind of most people would rather complain about reality TV and celebrities than they would complain about how terrible the streets are you know and you know how people can't get the sort of social care they should and all that sort of thing, you know, um, which is a larger problem throughout society. I think it's important to address those things, but like like I just said, if, if you're done with that, then 
I guess it's obviously you're the songwriter, man. Aye. Plus, I don't have much time to really get into the sort of political element. Like, there's some of my friends who are very politically engaged and are very socially conscious, and they're a lot more intelligent than I am. And oh, I tend I tend to think like if you're writing a song about it, you can really come across as quite politically naive because you've only got like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge to sum up your entire manifesto, and you're always going to miss out on something really important that someone's going to have a go at you for. You know, so I kind of just leave it be.
funny that you mentioned Billy Bragg because I was reading an interview with him recently and he was basically saying that he loved Joe Strummer and the Clash and always looked really good friends with him. It's like, they didn't go far enough though. That's why I am the voice I am because the band that are kind of seen as being one of the voices, they really didn't do that much yeah. in, in terms of that a sort of political opinion, I guess. Yeah, with the Clash, like I love the Clash, but I would agree with that, that a lot of what they did was a sloganeering. You know, they they had this whole, whole sort of thing of, you know, well, with the Clash and we came out and we see these sort of things, but when you actually look through the Clash singles, there's very little political stuff on it. There's a lot of social commentary, like Guns of Brixton and all that sort of thing, but it didn't really go into actual, like, detail. I mean, even with Billy Bragg songs, I mean, everyone forgets it. Half of Billy Bragg songs are about, you know, relationships. You know, there's a lot of his most famous songs are about his relationships with people. There's only a few of his songs that are actually more politically engaged. Um, I think he's became, I think especially Red Wedge and stuff in the 80s, he definitely became a bit of a figurehead for what people thought was political songwriting, but there's not that many when you go through his back catalogue that actually say anything worth saying about politics. You know, Elvis, Elvis Costello said more, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't really voice it. I think that Elvis Costello wrote some really politically savvy songs and kind of tried to be a bit more direct when I watched he's got a song called Tramp the Dirt Down about this was a song in 1988 that was all about like how he would react on the day Margaret Thatcher died and this was the height of the Thatcher government and he spent ages trying to make the song as vicious as he could but also as just as he could because he didn't want to be that another songwriter who was having a go at Thatcher because he wanted to get it spot on and when you listen to it back now it still stands up because it wasn't like aiming specific daggers at political events it was more about the hatred of a person so I think that a lot of Billy Bragg stuff is kind of idealistic but it doesn't really go for the jugular politically but there's a lot of that stuff really dated as well when you when you listen to a lot of political songwriters they, they it's kind of more first world problems with a lot of them you know there's very few that actually say anything worth saying and I still think one of the, the greatest kind of British social commentaries in any sort of songs or like you know listen to Oasis and it's like uh, and the song's kind of I can't remember it was in a line of cigarettes and alcohol uh, if it, if it, is it worth the aggravation to find myself a job and there's nothing worth working for and that's a great line in a song that kind of summed up an entire generation of British people you know the entire generation of British people that kind of fucked everything up for everybody now but that one line sort of sums up everything that was wrong with that entire generation that entire apathy so I think people who try their best to write political songs end up coming across a bit shortchanged I think yeah it kind of feeds back into what you just said about feeling that when you're writing political songs it feels like a bit naive like that idealism definitely feeds into that I think I remember reading or listening to an interview with Billy Bragg and he said he thought he was very politically savvy and he went, he got invited up to, to play at this miners convention during the miners strike up in Newcastle, I think it was. And he says when he got there, he kind of realised that he was just another, you know, upper working class guy who thought he knew what problems were until he went and met these people whose husbands were in prison or sons were in prison because they were protesting the miners strike. And that kind of made him go away and kind of go back to the books a wee bit and read about everything that was happening in the world and kind of make himself a bit more tuned in because he realised how naive he was just because he was a you know, mid-twenties guy who hated the current political government that didn't give him any right to talk about the rest of the rest of Britain, you know. You know, like politics is it's an important thing, I think, but like you know, I'm 
I mean, it's sort of like political crossroads. There's a lot of the parties I think have got good ideas, but I can't really get behind the people in them because I think they're... I think anybody who wants to go into politics to be, like, a Prime Minister or an SNP must have some sort of real problem in their lives that they think that them becoming, like, a host... Like, oh, that's the word. They kind of want to embody people's opinions. People must have a real psychological defect for that because they've either got a huge ego or a massive psychological defect, a defect that they think, I am going to resolve everybody's problems and everything's going to be fine. So it's, it's I kind of get really downhearted about it because, like, I'm a huge liberal. I'm a huge supporter of the Green Party, but I don't really associate myself with any of that because I think a lot of the ideas get lost in translation due to all the sort of pomp and ceremony of British politics. You know, I think there's a lot to be changed and all that. So it's it's something that like I think I'll get involved in more in the coming years, but at the moment I'm kinda get a bit of a bit of a political hangover from like the last eighteen months of everything that's happened in Scotland and everything that's happening in Britain that you kinda see that no matter how much you try and influence it, it's never going to really change unless everything changes. So Aye, bit of a political hangover at the moment. It's been an intense time for us. Yeah. In Scotland, for sure. Yeah, it's it's the one thing I remember having quite serious discussions with my parents about it. Because, like, my mother's always been quite a serious Labour voter, and my dad always quite engaged with politics and never voted. It's one of the only things we've ever had arguments about that he said, well, what's the point in voting when there's no one to vote for? It's like, so the people who shouldn't get in don't get in. That's the reason why you vote, you know, because. You know, I've voted Labour for a very long time, but it got to a point where you can't trust them anymore. And uh, so uh, that's that's the kind of the sort of passion that you, you get with politics. I'm glad to see a lot more other people are feeling it as well. I mean, even when you're walking about Glasgow, you see the houses that have got, you know, yes stickers or no stickers. That you know, it's good to see people had an opinion, regardless of what the opinion was. You know, to see such a high turnout was incredible, and it's great to see this sort of younger generation getting engaged with that at a young age. Which was generally, I mean, I don't remember anyone ever talking about politics as at school. You know, teachers did encourage you to go and read up on it. You know, people's parents weren't talking about politics. It was it's kind of depressing. You think that how messed up the country was throughout the 90s and no one was really getting engaged. They felt so disconnected because of the previous 20 years that no one was really bothering about it. You know, Aye, that's politics. To go back to the music thing, I guess let's let's go back to that. Uh, you've obviously had a lot of experience gigging. Uh, I was just kind of thinking, like when you said that you've played so many shows, like, what's the worst gig you could remember? I've done some bad ones. <clears throat> There's been a couple of really bad ones. Last year we were on tour. We played in Derby, and I think there was a grand total of about, including the sport band. It was it was a weird one because the guy who's booking the show was from up here, but I think he lived down there. And then his missus got ill, so he couldn't come to the gig. So then it wasn't really promoted. So there was a band that we thought were a local band, but it turned out they weren't. They were the main support. They were also on tour. So it was two touring bands playing who knew no one in Derby. So I think we played, I think, one paying punter and then, like, bands and crew. And it was just one of those shows where you're just like... In fact, we actually played really well at that gig, but it was one, two days before that we played in Sheffield. And we had been booked, we'd been told by, like, guys in Vasa had said, right, phone up the South Sea in, Sh- in Sheffield because they do great gigs. And I'm like, ah, cool. But our research showed this venue seemed to be really, really great. So we got a show and it was, like, 
a traditional thing that tends to happen with carnivals is where you're the heaviest band on the bill of indie bands or where you're the, the, the most timid band on a bill of utter metal bands. So we were like second band on supporting this band called Castle City who are like, uh, yeah, they're like Liverpudley and proper like brocore metal band. No, they seem pretty nice guys to be honest but like they're like stupidly heavy and we were on second. We played our show to I think it was about four people who'd came to see us from Sheffield. The promoter made up some shady excuse that um, oh because there was another show that night he might not be able to pay us. So naturally us being Glaswegians I had to go and kind of basically threaten the guy and we got money. But I remember being in the hotel room that night and uh Martin, our drummer, was staying up all night to try and do his dissertation. And I think I was watching Cape Fear at like three in the morning, just sort of reevaluating like my life. Kind of going, <laughs> we've just played a show to four people in Sheffield to like the worst venue I've ever been in in my life. And like, we still have another five gigs to go on this tour. That was pretty soul destroying. But I remember when I was doing acoustic gigs, playing a show night at the Edinburgh Festival, and it was the last time I was in a physical fight. <laughs> it was about 2007 and there was an American guy who was just talking really loudly and there was about 50, 60 people there, there to see me and it was an unplugged show so it was really quiet and everyone was being really nice and attentive and it was cool this guy kept on talking and talking and being really loud so I asked him to be quiet at the end of the gig he said something and I said something to him and I swore at him and he did the classic American thing of like, don't curse buddy and like, asked him outside <laughs> and then he proceeded to push me and I decked him and I think he was trying to phone the police and he got back up and I punched him again. <laughs> but that was the worst feeling I've ever had at a gig of this, like, why are some people so irritating in music? But that was a bad experience at a show. I hate that lack of respect, especially yeah. with the car. It's just like, yeah. this guy's playing quietly, shut yeah. the fuck up. Aye. And it's not that, it's that way. Sense the tone. There's other people here enjoying this and want it to be quiet. <laughs> and you're just being loud. I mean, we've done some bad gigs in terms of... I don't think we've ever played a gig where we walked off stage and went, we were terrible tonight. We've had some gigs like previous lineups and previous bands where you come off and you go, no, no chance. But uh, Carnival's generally, we've always played good shows, but like we've had good shows where we've played well, but the audience has been terrible. Like, we played in the family once and some guy tried to glass me, um, like I was in the crowd, and there was about 40 people there. And a bunch, like, bunch of people enjoying it, a bunch of people not. And some guy, like, threw a pint glass at me that just bounced off my chest and landed on the floor. And his mates started absolutely ridiculing him to the point where he got chucked out of the venue for trying to punch his own mate. <laughs> but this is while I was still playing guitar and it was kind of oblivious to what was going on, but the guy showed, the venue owner showed me the CCTV back afterwards and it was, it was hilarious, but... I don't think there's... That, that Sheffield and that Derby show and that tour was two pretty catastrophic feeling gigs where you're just kind of... Afterwards, you're just lying there going, what's the point? You know, you drive all the way down to play a show. You've put a lot of work into it, you know. The guys at a label would put a lot of work into sending posters out to the venue. They hadn't put them up, blah, blah, blah. You then do the show. There's like four people there who have came to see your band, which is amazing. You know, it's the old sort of thing where you can't, it's not those four people's fault that no one else is there. So you play, you try and play a really, really good show. But that way where you're trying to play a good show and you can hear the other band in the dressing room next to the stage sitting drinking and like playing like Liverpool songs mm -hmm. and like shouting and stuff and you're like oh man this is a terrible state of affairs but 
Aye. Those are probably the worst ones, but thankfully I've... I don't think I've ever done a show to literally no one. I've done some really quiet gigs. Like, so those those two on that tour, but I've never done a show where I've walked off stage and... I was saying that there was a gig we'd done in Oban, actually. This is a bit of a mental story. Like, Grant, our bass player, is from Oban. And he'd always wanted to go back and do a show, kind of like, when I was like, I'll go back and show them what I've achieved. Because Oban's a really weird place where, like, they're really suspicious of Glasgow. And Grant moved down here. And even though to everybody else down here, he's still got the thickest accent in the world, all his mates think he's a mad city boy now because he stays down here and all that. And he has pesto and has, like, coffee and stuff. <laughs> and, like, reads books and all that stuff. So we went back. Uh, the local council were doing, like, a big... Halloween gig where it was like a big ball and there's a venue called the the Corn Halls and it's like thousand capacity, so the 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 local council were like yeah we'll give Grant's band like a grand to come and play this gig, <laughs> and we were like saving up to do our album and we were like yeah they want you to do like half covers half originals and we were like yeah because we play covers all the time for fun, you know just for a laugh so we we're like yeah we we'll do a bunch of covers you know that's that's a good laugh, so we drove all the way up there, and uh, sound checked and everything was cool venues looking great and all that and. It was apparently sold out. So that's just, that's going to be really, really cool. So we went to Grant's parents' house and we're having dinner and back down to the venue about midnight to play the show. Everybody running the gig was like the drunkest and most coked up people in the entire world. And like, Grant was, was, was trying to quit, quit cigarettes at this point. So he was going cold turkey in the fags. So he was like shaking and then I never shrek. Our drummer was driving so he wasn't drinking. I don't really drink before gigs and our tech was stone cold sober. And uh like there was decks on the stage and like one of the local councillors was doing a massive line of coke off a record as it was spinning around on stage <laughs> and uh, so we were doing the gig and people were enjoying it people are wrecked though so they're jumping about and not listening to music and a fight broke out in the crowd and the local councillor guy tried to pull us off stage and was like trying to shove money in an envelope to give to our tech so he's got like 20 pound notes on top of the amps trying to count out like a grand in money and like throw it in a suitcase like proper like mental stuff so they ended up throwing us off stage and we couldn't get any address in him because someone had barricaded the door and I was like fucking fuming and I very rarely get very angry and like walked off stage and kicked the door clean off the hinges and someone's wife like apparently a councillor's wife had overdosed in the dressing room oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> so like i was just in like the worst mood that we'd come all the way up and it was all these drunk assholes on stage like trying to like turn off the amps and all this when we were playing and like doing drugs on stage and like just it was really disappointing that you come all the way to a show that's sold out and all these people are meant to be having fun and the people organizing that are just lunatics so they ended up they overpaid us so fuck them <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that was one of the that was one of the gigs where it should have been brilliant there's been quite a few of those in our career like you do gigs that should be really really good but end up being a bit weird because of other issues or a bit surreal that was a surreal one that like this guy's trying to pay a grand while dressed as a skeleton and is completely out of his mind on drugs you know so that was about that was mental <laughs> So the Carnival's live experience is, is, is interesting. <laughs> yeah, generally we don't do shows drunk or anything like that, and none of us do drugs, so it's like, a lot of people do. I mean, I remember when, when we first started, there was a mad rumour about me that kind of was some mad drug lunatic, because live we jump about and go crazy and all this. And you're not. I know. <laughs> so, like, the, the shows are like a complete release when we go crazy on stage. It's generally completely sober. We have a few drinks and there's some shows where 
I have played completely out of my mind, but that's a rarity. I can I still have relative motor functions when I'm steaming, so I can play quite complicated stuff well half cut. Um, so like our shows are always pretty crazy, uh, and it's a good experience when it goes well. So you must be looking forward to doing a live album in, in Derry. Derry is the hometown of your record label, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, our label Small Town America is based in uh, Derry. Um, so that's going to be really cool. Like I said at the start, like, our albums are good and I really enjoy them, but there's an element of our shows that the live thing is really cool because we do improvise quite a bit live and the songs are just a bit more... The, that sort of cool thing you want from a rock band is that it's loose and tight at the same time. It feels like it's about to fall apart because it's going so crazy, but it's also so streamlined and so controlled. Kind of like, when I listen to certain rock records, that's what I'd want it to sound like, like Smashing Pumpkins at their peak or at the drive-in, where it was just really chaotic, but at the same time, just smashing it. So that's kind of one thing we've always been really good at live, and any time I've heard tapes of his live, or any time I've heard like radio sessions, I've always thought, that's what we should sound like, but we've never been able to capture it. I mean, even on our last records, we recorded it completely live, like, no click tracks or anything like that, just kind of blasted it out. That was still good, but it's still a bit tame because we're thinking about it. So the live album's going to be good. It'll just be completely live as it happens. We can all the fun bits left in. How did the Small Town America thing come about? Um, I've been buying records from Small Town since about 2002. And um, kind of like, kept in contact with the guys. Like I think they'd heard of us because we'd toured with a band called Modern Conquerors who are on small town and we kind of arranged a lot of their early tours and he'd stayed with us and all that sort of thing so when uh, Jetplane Landon who are one of my favourite bands reformed they were going on tour I emailed them like have you guys got support for Glasgow and they were like oh fun enough we were just about to email you guys to see if you want to do it so we were kind of blown away and at the time we were just about to go in and record an EP like it was going to be and uh, Andrew from the label kind of said that after the gig like you should send us this when it's done because I think it'll be really good and we recorded it and sent it to them just thinking it was going to be an EP and they were like this is great do an album and we'll put it out and that's how it started it was just as simple as that you know um, so we signed a deal with them but actually in like very rock and roll mythology still we signed a record deal with them on my 27th birthday mm-hmm. so I was kind of a bit paranoid that I was going to go a bit Jimi Hendrix but thankfully I'm 28 now and I've survived <laughs> <laughs> Well, so apparently you're not that drugged up guy on stage anyway. So. No, no. <laughs> I'm actually 100% not that guy. That was one thing when I turned 27, I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to get into heroin now. It's just the way things are going to go, you know. Like we did, uh, there was a thing last year in, uh, at King Tut's. It was like a 20th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's uh, suicide. So it was a big gig um, to raise money for mental illness. Mental illness. You know, it was for the, the Scottish Association for Mental Health, which is an amazing charity. Yeah. So we, yeah, let's definitely do this. So we're doing that gig. And like I said, I just turned 27. Kurt came in, died at 27. Mm-hmm. I started having this really mystery stomach illness in the, the weeks running up to the gig. So I had been ill for about four weeks running up to the gig and like could barely play. I was like, I am becoming a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd done the gig like of me, like kind of pure emaciated, kind of on stage and had like a Fender Jaguar and all this. And fuck. <laughs> Where's the smack? Yeah, it was at that point then that I get really paranoid because Martin, our drummer, decided he was going to write a solo album where he's singing and playing guitar. And I was like, "Are you waiting on me killing myself so you can become Dave Grohl? Is this just a thing?" Um, so that gig was great, but it was a bit like because the first gig I ever done was playing like Smells Like Teen Spirit. So doing that gig was kind of like a 
full circle sort of thing. Uh, but that was a good show. But aye, so thankfully, I've, when I turned 28 this year, it was a momentous occasion. And a massive relief. It was a massive relief, aye. <laughs> it could have gone either way. <laughs> That's great, man. Have you got anything else you want to say for, for a wrap-up? Um, not really. I'm going to continue playing music until I either get bored of it or can't anymore. Or die. Yeah, well, I don't plan on dying anytime soon. You know, I kind of like the idea of not becoming a cliche. I mean, the idea of playing rock music won't last ever, but like I said, I, I love playing music in all forms. I've been trying to come up with a good idea for a solo album, but I don't want to do that traditional thing of this, like, guy in rock band suddenly gets the acoustic guitar out and writes some really sad songs. That's fucking overplayed. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe if I did that, I'd maybe get nominated for a Say Award, because otherwise that's not going to happen. <laughs> There's a lot I could say about that, but I think we should probably just leave it there. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. No problem, man. Cheers. So there you have it. Quite an interesting and enlightening interview, I thought. I think that's pretty much the theme. I'm trying to go for interesting and enlightening interviews. Kenny was no exception to that. Very articulate, intelligent guy, as I said at the start. And it was a total pleasure to speak with him. Plus he does have a really nice flat. So yeah, check out their album on Small Town America. It's called Let's Get Metaphysical. Check them out on Facebook, check them out on Twitter. They work really hard and they deserve your support. So please go do that. Uh, that's going to be all for this week. If you could like uh, like me on Facebook at The Curator Podcast, check out the website, www.thecuratorpodcast.com. I'm also on Twitter where I seem to be quite active of late. So if you want to have a chat, get me there. It's The Curator Pod. Or you can send me an email. Uh, I respond to emails. I love emails. Oh, yes. And also... Please join the newsletter. I'm getting more subscribers every week. It's good. I hope people will like it. If, you are, if you're already on it, please get back to me if you think I can make adjustments. Feedback is crucial, and I love to hear people's opinions and feedback on this stuff. So yeah, please do that. So I'm going to play you out now with another track from Carnivore's debut album. This song is called John Maynard Keynes, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Circle of death that prompts you to buy things you will never need.